you need to feel all of this stuff and you need to almost fall to your knees on the floor Mm. and break down completely. If you're ever going to move past this, you need to surrender to how life is now. Hello and welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Mandy Leto. This show is a mashup of inspiration and exploration around what gets in the way of us feeling good enough. If you're a leader whose life looks shiny and together from the outside, but inside your inner critic assures you that you are one hot mess, this podcast is for you. It's time to own your worth quirks, foibles, imperfections, and all. Welcome to Enough. You know that old saying, life is what happens when you're making other plans. That's what today's episode is all about. What happens to your sense of self and your enoughness when an unexpected life event wipes out the you you thought you were. I knew early on after this happened, I'm not that girl anymore. Like she's totally gone. You know, and the, the grief was unbearable. I just, I, I knew, I knew in my bones that I was never going to be that girl again. Today's guest is Catherine Kell, now a mindfulness and self-compassion teacher. In her early 30s, Catherine had an incident that obliterated her work hard, play hard lifestyle and left her fighting for her life. How do we rise again after life-changing trauma? How do we surrender, accept, and maybe even learn to love ourselves again? Let's find out. Grab your cuppa. Catherine Kell, I am so delighted to share you with my audience. Thank you for playing with us today. Thank you for inviting me here. Tell us a little bit about you and who you are and what you help people with. And then we're going to roll up our sleeves and get right in. We're going to get stuck in. We're going to get stuck in. Oh, I love it. Okay. So my name's Catherine, Catherine Kell. Um, I teach people self-compassion and mindfulness in a nutshell. Um, But even to kind of come away from those terms, I teach people how to be in good relationship with themselves, I think is probably um, a nice way to put it, how to be kinder to themselves. And um, I think that applies to most people. (laughs) So I'm based in Scotland, I'm Scottish, and I came to this work through um, what you've already hinted at there really was um, my own kind of huge um, obliterating life moment. Self-compassion is something that really brought me through that. So now it's what I do. Um, And I think the lived experience really helps. A little background on Catherine. She had a big corporate job in London in her 20s. By 26, she was director level in her marketing communications job, managing folks in their 40s. She was known for her work hard, play hard culture. She was the life of the party, fun to be around, had loads of friends, and was looking like a shooting star in her industry. In her early 30s, she started having more niggling pain in her hip, something that had always been a challenge for her since childhood. She discovered at the age of 31 that she needed a hip replacement. Now you might think, at 31, a hip replacement? Wow. 
But Catherine was delighted because she thought once and for all, it's going to sort out this hip challenge. What could go wrong? It's a standard procedure. An artery was left open during the surgery and it was hemorrhaging for three or four days before it was discovered. They had to go in for a second life-threatening surgery to clean it up. And Catherine's parents were told, this could be it. We can't be sure she's going to make it. Fortunately, she did. And she was hovering in that place between life and death for a couple of days. When she finally woke up and saw the state of her body, she wished she wouldn't have survived. The person that she identified as fun-loving, overachieving, somebody who was an, a, you know, a, a perfectionist going places in life. She no longer existed. It took four years of hard graft and tons of therapies and painkillers before she could walk in a way that looked reasonably normal to other people. She was on 30 different types of drugs and even still, she was in acute nerve pain every single day. And because life is complicated as it is, she was with a new man. They had been together about 10 months before this happened. She knew she wasn't the same person that he had gotten together with, and she tried to push him away, saying, you should go. Fortunately, he stuck around, and he helped her shave her legs, wash, eat, keep her spirits up. I want to take you in this conversation right into the eye of the storm. How does it feel when illness or something unexpected takes away the persona that you identify with? What are the emotions that come up? And how do we find peace with this thing that we never wanted, that's taken away who we think we are? How do we find peace with that? Back to the conversation. I was really angry really angry that human error had done this. I couldn't get past the point that someone else did this to me. Um, and I felt so angry, so frustrated, and just totally lost in, in grief. I mean, honestly, I, I didn't want to be here. I had so many times I wished that I had not come out of that theatre. Like, I was like, why did I even survive this? What is the fucking point in living this life if this is what I'm left with this body that's barely able to move is in agonizing pain and from an emotional and mental perspective I was so traumatized I mean the trauma was so deep so I'd not only lost my sense of self you know my self-identity had completely shattered but it was compounded by this intense trauma and I just I didn't know what to do other than I just I hated my body I hated the way that it not even the way it looked. I mean, that was a secondary thing, just the fact that it wasn't working. And I, I hated on a lot of things. <laughs> I, hate, I, hate, I felt hatred and anger for, for so many things. Um, I mean, it's really hard to describe those. It was a really dark time and it went on for months and months and months and years. Like it was not a quick, there was no quick fix through this um, level of grief and, and at the same time I kind of had to keep showing up for myself so I had to keep going to I had outpatient appointments every single day of the week I mean even when I was out of hospital I was still basically back in hospital sometimes even six times a week um, I was in the hydrotherapy pool for about a year and a half just in water trying to get this this body working um, so, and that's before I even made it to my dry land physio, you know, my family, we talk about the difference between the in the water physio and the dry land physio. Um, 
but it was really, really hard. It was a really dark time, riddled with pain, all kinds of pain, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, just felt obliterated. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. Mm. And as I said, I, I really value having people telling their stories because I don't know about you, but when I was in my recovery, I felt so alone. There were people loving and caring on me, but I think it's the uncertainty and in your case compounded with the trauma and the pain of the, the, it feels like there's nothing to hold on to. It doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. that there's no progress and particularly for people who have been doers the way that you were, mm -hmm. that there's also that part of the identity that falls away, which is clearly in your case, lower down the pecking order of importance because, you know, your body is literally not functioning, but this idea, like, what is, I know I used to think this often, like, what is even the point of me? How do mm -hmm. I, con how do I add value? All I'm doing is being a drain on everyone around me. Mm. And I can't, this is the people pleasing part kick in. Like I can't, I can't hustle for my worth by over giving because I have nothing left mm. to give and I have to purely be in receiving mode. And that can be so discombobulating as these parts of ourselves that have been on autopilot Mm -hmm. now they, that really starts to come to the surface. Like now I have to be receiving of care. Somebody needs to shave my legs and sit me on the, on the toilet. And, you know, it, it was really shower me, wash shower me. Wash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what happened? What was the, what was the beginning of the turnaround for you? Um, well, there was, there was lots of, of therapy just before I start that, just I, I, that really resonated with me, what you just said. I felt like such a burden. I felt just like such a burden. And I think that was one of the main reasons that I didn't want to live. And in those dark nights, I just didn't, didn't want to be here anymore. It was more the burden that I felt I was to others. And it's strange how we think like that, isn't it, as a human, when people are wanting to love us we feel like such a burden you know and often when we've been the ones offering the love it has mm -hmm. felt like a joy and an honor and a privilege and just something that of course we would offer that and I think this is one of the component parts as I stop, start to talk to more overachievers who are in our kind of drying out period of not being able to overachieve because in the, you know in this case it's a physical thing that blocks you from going out there and over-functioning, over-giving. Mm -hmm. It really forces us to receive and that can be so uncomfortable. So if you're listening and you're struggling with receiving, you're not alone. We've, yeah. we, both of us have been there. And I think this mm -hmm. is a larger sample size than two. I think <laughs> oh my God, a, yeah. a larger phenomena. So, yeah. so take us yeah. to the turnaround. Yeah. So um I had lots of talking therapy provided um, initially, and some of that was in the same hospital where it had happened. Some was in another hospital. I was part of an acute pain team psychology service, which the NHS brilliantly runs. Um, so, and I was in and out doing all sorts of acute pain type um, psychology and therapy stuff. But what I found was, and bearing in mind, this is back in 2006, 2007, these early couple of years, um, the talk therapy was very much talk therapy. 
you know, it was me telling this horrible story over and over again. And, you know, I was in these sessions, I could barely breathe. I was constantly hyperventilating, having panic attacks. I could hardly bear to bring my brain to, to have a visual of any of the stuff that had happened in hospital. And I wasn't, I found that for me personally, that wasn't working because I needed something I could do for myself. I was, I needed to be resourced. I was like, well, what do I do in between these sessions? I'm coming and talking about it, but I don't know how, how do I move forward? Um, and I think actually in some ways therapy has changed quite a lot since then. And I think more traditional talk therapies do build in resources and stuff as well. Um, but I, I never had things to kind of do between sessions or anything to kind of make me feel like I was taking some sense of control back because I had lost all sense of control. Um, so a couple of years in, I started doing some mindfulness for myself. And I don't actually remember what, I don't remember what prompted that. I don't know if I'd seen it in a book or I'm not really even sure now where that came from. To be honest, I was on so many drugs all the time. <laughs> Everything's a bit hazy. Um, so yeah, I started doing some mindfulness and from that, suddenly I felt like, oh, I could do a few, I could maybe try three or four minutes of this each day. Maybe, maybe I could do that. And the thing, the carrot that was dangling in that was that I probably mistakenly believed at that point that it could help empty my head <laughs> of some of it. Um, I quickly learned that, that that was not the, the point of mindfulness. Um, but and then from that mindfulness stuff, I learned about self-compassion because the part of mindfulness which really worked for me was the kindfulness element, the non-judgmental element. And for someone who'd spent the, the previous couple of years and much of my life, to be fair, judging myself, being able to learn how to be with the way that I felt, even the really potent feelings, and not judge myself for having them, that was a complete game changer. And, and to do it in a way where I was being, I was doing it in to be kind to myself. Does that make sense? The, the whole process felt like I was starting to it wasn't even acceptance at that point I think it was more the surrender at this point this was the you need to feel all of this stuff and you need to almost fall to your knees on the floor mm. and break down completely if you're ever going to move past this you need to surrender to how life is now and that life will not be the same. And the crack opened and the grief came pouring out. And I think I, that only happened because I suddenly felt an, an iota of safety with having done some mindfulness that I could bear to be with myself when that happened. Because up until that point, I had no resource to feel safe, to feel what I needed to feel, which was profound grief and loss and I just agonizing pain for the whole thing because I wasn't better yet and I didn't know my prognosis was still you might not have children you might not walk properly again you might not you know there was still no positive prognosis or anything so I figured yeah you kind of got to break this shell open coffee break pee break whatever that sound evokes for you a quick word on feelings if you're doing the work of healing, 
from trauma or processing memories from years gone by, chances are that emotions will start bubbling up. This is a gentle, loving reminder. If these feel much more overwhelming than simply challenging, to reach out to a professional to support you on this processing journey. This is not something that you need to do alone. Back to the episode. That left me goosebumpy listening to that and in my own way resonated as well, that there's no feelings demand to be felt sooner or later. And we can use all sorts of what feels like coping mechanisms in the moment and completely tamp that shit down. But eventually it will bubble up and it must bubble up. And it sounds like you found a safe way to do that. And I think that would be important. Just as a little sidebar here, for somebody who's listening and thinking, oh, that sounds really, that sounds really awful to, you know, fall to your knees and feel the grief. Can you, can you just offer some words of wisdom there in terms of what that could look like in a safe space? Mm. Well, you know, now having done the work I've done and then the training I've done and working with other people, I think that starting that process by building safety and relationship with someone who's trained to help you through these things is actually important. Um, And if that's not affordable, then doing that certainly in the UK through NHS services, I know GPs now can refer. um, And, you know, I think, I think starting to feel that sense of safety and relationship is, is the, the first important step. And just cracking that stuff open a little bit and learning resources of how to bring ourselves back to safety. Like we've got these zones of tolerance. So we've got our safety in the middle and then we can nudge out towards challenge. And then if we go a step further than feeling challenged by what we're experiencing, we go into overwhelm. And what you, the the learning is really how do we bring ourselves from overwhelm back to safety? But we don't want to spend our whole time in safety because unless we challenge ourselves and the challenge is is letting the heart open, um, unless we do that, we're not going to move forwards in the same way. So some of the ways to bring ourselves back to safety can just be, um, you know, if it feels safe for us focusing on our breath in and out of our body or putting the attention into our feet and feeling how our feet meet the the ground, moving our toes around, rocking our feet from side to side, feeling that grounding effect and just taking, drawing downwards that sense of stress, overwhelm or or emotion. Um, For some people, looking out the window, finding a horizon, looking at clouds passing, some people say listening to music, but I personally find music quite emotionally activating a lot of the time. So it's it, it's a very personal thing. But if things are starting to feel overwhelming, it's nice to have that kind of toolkit or that sense of how do we bring ourselves back to safety, which really means just a normal, more balanced thing. It might be going to make a cup of tea or having a shower or getting cold water from the tap and, you know, putting it onto our face just to kind of cool ourselves but there's, you know, there's lots of kind of ways to ground. Um, and, you know, people tend to learn that kind of thing in relationship with someone else. And then if you are alone at home, 
and you feel the heart opening and you feel the rising up of emotions. Sometimes you feel safer to cry and to feel, knowing that you've got ways to kind of bring yourself back if it all starts to feel too much. Thank you. I, I think that that's a useful, normally I do the tips part at the end, but it just, <laughs> my intuition was that if somebody was really resonating with your experience that, you know, that it's a way that they can practically use that tool. Mm. So you started to get more and more into mindfulness and into bringing yourself back to safety. And I'm really interested to understand how you learn to re-identify. So I know you've got the mindfulness aspect of it, but mm. it wasn't just a happy tralala skipping along, you know, the, the posy lined path of <laughs> I had this situation Definitely and I lo not. loathed myself. Mm. And now I'm in this place of surrender and acceptance. And now I might actually quite think I'm pretty rad and quite cool and, you know, love <laughs> myself even. It's just what I'm trying to say is take us into the mess of that, that it wasn't just a linear, happy, clappy journey. Yeah, it definitely wasn't. And, um, you know, we're 15 years later now and, you know, things are still a work in progress, aren't they? So yeah, early on, I think, you know, it was bringing in self-compassion. I read books um, by um, Christopher Germer, I think was the first book I read. Um, and then Kristen Neff, um, her things, this was around maybe 2010 or something. And I really, it resonated so much with me. And so did their instructional was to go gently and to go slowly. I think part of the acceptance of who I was, part two, <laughs> was, was going really gently with her. Um, and I kind of, one thing that really helped me, and this has just come to mind now actually, was I had a photograph of myself when I was five. And I had that photograph with me everywhere I went. I used to keep it in my pocket because I could connect with her, but not the me that was in my 20s. You know, I, I found that that, chi that child was actually still in me. Um, so I think in terms of self-compassion, which is about kind of offering ourselves the friendliness and the acceptance of ourselves, despite our imperfections, our inadequacies, mostly perceived, aren't they? Um, I, I um, yeah, was able to, to offer friendliness. I think I started with friendliness. It was a process of befriending and it was really, really slow. And there was a lot of unpicking to do, um, certainly around the anger and stuff. You know, that took a long time. No, did you find that in the unpicking of the anger and the grief, I know when we've spoken before, you said you allowed yourself to grieve periodically, yeah. you, you didn't make it wrong to grieve. Because, you know, it's so easy, especially when we have well meaning people around, it's like, Oh, you're lucky to be alive. And there's this kind of oh, spiritual yeah. skip over piece of it. But this shit is hard. Yeah, So this idea of like the unpicking and allowing the grief and allowing the anger. Mm. And what did that look like for you? I'm not saying you necessarily had a ritual around it. But yeah, it's interesting to see how other people grieve the self that we've lost. Yeah. And then continue to move on as opposed to falling into that pit mm -hmm. of feeling bad about ourselves. So it's, it's yeah. what I'm hearing you say is the road to surrender and acceptance includes allowing grief for what we've lost. 
Yeah. I how did you, how did you grieve her? It, there was um, kind of, it, this sounds a bit heavy, but multiple breakdowns, <laughs> you know, there was an awful lot of, um, when I, when I allowed myself to start feeling it and kind of just I'm naming how I was feeling um, and validating myself, you know, I feel angry because, and I was able to, you know, the reason was there. It wasn't as if I was just feeling angry for no reason. Um, and kind of linking those two things up, the validation of I feel like this, and then remembering that I'm not the only person who's felt this profound grief or who has had an accident or who has, um, whose body is in pain because I felt very alone. I felt very isolated originally because this had never happened to anyone. They kept saying, oh, it's one in multi-millions of people. Like, it's just not something that had happened to someone. Um, and all the complications I had with it, it was very much a unique kind of case. And that left me feeling really isolated. But part of the grieving process was realizing that other people on this planet have felt this way too. And that kind of common humanity or that shared human experience almost allowed me to grieve. It was like, okay, you know, other people are struggling as well. And I can almost admit to myself that this is really hard. I can almost, you know, there was almost, yeah, I almost had to just that validation of saying it is hard. It is hard because it's hard. And I can allow myself to crack open a bit. I also had, um, I also had a, a, quite a lot of anger for all the people around me and stuff as well. So I think in a more practical sense, I became more careful about who I would let come through my door to visit. And that's a very practical thing. But I think when people are struggling with um, a kind of loss of sense of self or identity or grief, people through no intention, but they will often say the wrong thing and which can compound things further and make you feel less alone again and more isolated again. So I, I became very careful actually of who I shared with. I didn't talk about a lot of this with even some quite close friends. If they visited, they saw the happy smiley person. I might be lying on the sofa, you know, half out of it with, with all my drugs beside me and, um, you know, clearly in pain and stuff. I still crack jokes and things. You know, I, I didn't want to... Um, share everything with everyone at that point because it was so raw and so difficult so I think that was empowering that sense of choice like how am I grieving and how do I how do I kind of come to like who I am now and I was quite choosy about eventually about who was part of that process for me because I think the people around us really can help or hinder and if we yes. do have choice, I know that's a privilege in itself, but if we do have choice to um, not be well enough to see someone one day because we just don't want to see that person, then I think we should exercise that choice. I think whatever the nature of our grief is, I think our choice is really important because what people say can derail us so easily. Because this is all new. It's, it's a very new tender that's the word that comes to mind it's a tender process of re-identifying with our changed selves and accepting that it's not a one and done mm. that it's a it's a constant process at least for a little while of whatever however long that takes to to be with this new person who we're becoming particularly if we're healing and it's changing day by week by month by year mm. and would you say now that you're 
now I'm being really tongue in cheek, but are you done? Are you done your healing? Um, no, I think, see, I like, I prefer the word healing to healed. Cause actually I just think, you know, things will still come up that, that do trigger me. Um, you know, and sometimes I'll remember an old friend or something, because another part of my grieving process was grieving the loss of some friends. You know, there was the good time kind of friends who faded out over time because I couldn't offer myself in the same way anymore. Um, so, yeah, things will still trigger me. Actually, the pandemic massively triggered me. I mean, I was um, last summer, summer 2020, I had to step away from social media and you know I did it again for a couple of months over the winter and even these last couple of weeks I've stepped away because I recognize for my mental health and for the things that I'm dealing with in terms of feeling you know still having chronic pain or chronic illness and related things and having to look after myself carefully um, you know that you know again making those choices is really important. So I would say healing is an ongoing thing, really, because when you've had such deep set trauma, you come through and there is that surrender and there's the acceptance. Like I, I accept now that it's a fact. What happened to me happened to me. I, I accept that that happened. Um, but it doesn't mean that I don't find myself in choppy waters sometimes because I don't always like the fact that it happened. I hear a lot of stories, actually, people say, I'm so grateful that this happened to me because it taught me so much and I'm so grateful for it. And I've always found that for me personally, I I've never found gratitude for what happened to me. I don't feel any sense of gratitude for what happened to me, actually. I feel gratitude towards myself for coming through it. I feel gratitude towards the people who helped me come through it I feel gratitude towards the people I've learned from and that have taught me skills and ways to to kind of progress my healing I've, I have enormous gratitude for all of those things but I don't think I can necessarily turn around to the moment when a scalpel went through my artery and think well I feel really grateful that happened you know it, it it's it's an interesting thing it's very personal isn't it about how we how our healing progresses but um yeah. And, you know, parenting has also been something that has, you know, th there's there's triggers in that in terms of what somebody with a chronic pain issue or whatever the fuel I may have in my tank in any one day. Um, you know, yeah, I'm reminded I'm reminded of what happened for sure. So healing, I think. Yeah. So healing in the real world. And of course, this is very, very different. So this is your experience. And a lot of what you say aligns with my experience is, am I grateful that I was in bed for a year? Am I grateful that I'll never be that person again? You know, I can't say that I embrace, it has been a burnout has been a major teacher for me. Mm -hmm. It has been a springboard to bring me into new, much more self-compassionate territory. It has taught me surrender because it forced me to, I was not a willing participant and ultimately I stopped thrashing and allowed it to happen. But I'm so glad that you brought up that point. That is a, you know, that we can feel grateful for our resilience and grateful for how we coped, grateful for our support systems. And we don't have to embrace that whole, oh yes, I'm so grateful that happened because I'm a different person. We can be a different person and still not, you know, we not have that relationship with what with mm. what happened to us. You were talking earlier about, as we come to the end of the episode, I always like to leave something practical with listeners. You were talking about this 
feeling that you were part of something bigger. And that was a real shift for you that allowed you to feel less isolated. And I know that you teach this three-step tool. Would you teach that to us? I know that was probably the first step of the three-step tool because I think anybody listening who's still with us in the episode would love to leave with something in their back pocket, Mm. including a picture of their five-year-old. And the other (laughs) pocket might have this tool that they can practice because this really is, at least in my experience, a day by day, a step by step, a drip, 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 drip process. Mm. And I know when you taught me this tool a couple of months ago, I've used it and I found it so powerful. Would you share it with our audience? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, And, you know, sometimes having a really practical thing that's memorable and accessible is what we need in the moment, isn't it? So this is based on Kristen Neff's self-compassion break. Um, And it's a lovely tool. It's a three-step tool. It's straightforward, should be easy to remember. And before I explain what it is, you can do this tool in 30 seconds in the moment when you feel self-criticism rise up or you feel... um, you know, inadequate or not not enough for some reason, or you can incorporate into a longer practice. You could sit for 10, even 20 minutes and kind of really sit with each of the three points. So the first thing to do is just stop and acknowledge what you're feeling. I mentioned validation before, like validating what you're feeling. Like, yeah, and that can be, I feel really angry right now, or this is really hard, this is stressful, or just this is shit, this feels shitty to me right now. And there's something in that validation which just stops everything else from pouring for a moment. And then the second step is about recognizing that you're not alone, okay? That, that we have a shared human experience. Suffering is not dished out in the same way for everyone, you know, but everyone will experience some form of suffering in their life. That's human. Um, so maybe just saying to yourself, I'm not alone, or others have felt like this, or I don't know, I'm not the only one who's ever felt this way. Something like that is step two and sit with that for a moment. And then the third step is really just about being a bit curious about what you need and exploring what you need. So that might just be repeating a mantra to yourself. May I be kind to myself in this moment that is hard. May I be kind to myself. May I be kind to myself or kind of tune in and say, what is it that I need? What is it that I need? Usually tea. What do I need to hear? Yeah, tea. Or walk. It's like very simple things, right? Really simple things. But we forget, you know, sometimes I'm I'm just going to go all out here. Sometimes in this three-step thing, when I'm feeling overwhelmed and something's got me impatient or whatever, when I get to step three and think, what do I need? I realize I need to go to the bathroom. You know, like... (laughs) Sometimes we're just not even kind of caring enough of ourselves to kind of feel those body prompts within us. Oh my God, I haven't had a drink of water for an hour and a half. I need a drink of water. You know, and it's, and we think these small things won't help, but what this exercise is doing is cultivating a sense of giving a shit about ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's cultivating a sense of, I care about you. I care about you enough to check in. If it was a friend that you really cared about, you would reach out and you would say, this is really hard right now. And I get this. You, you do the common humanity thing somehow as step two. And then step three, you say, well, how can I help? What do you need? What can I do for you? And we're, we are not well wired to do that for ourselves. So this little break is a wonderful tool. It sounds small and simple, but it can be really transformative. if We learn just to do that in our lives every day. And even when we're not struggling as well, just as a way of checking in. I have practiced this. I often do it when I'm starting to feel a bit 
crusty about something. And as I said, I realize that often there's some kind of unmet need, whether it's sleep or I haven't eaten or something along those lines. So it just pulls us out of our, at least for me, it pulls me out of my head and into my body where there's so much wisdom that I never learned how to access. And I think with a lot of overachievers and people pleasers and perfectionists, we live a lot in our heads and this tool allows us to drop into our bodies. Mm, Absolutely. I ask every guest at the end of the episode to lay a brick of wisdom. It could be a sentence. It could be a single word about what you would like to leave with our listeners of what you gleaned from your journey for somebody else who might be experiencing something similar, who might be feeling they're not enough, who might feel disidentified with themselves. What would your brick on the journey to enough be? Can can I have two words? You absolutely can. (laughs) My brick would say embracing me. And I think I'm choosing those because it chimes both with my story and, and how I've come through, which is really about learning how to be in relationship with myself, even though I, I something changed me. But also it speaks to self-compassion because that's what self-compassion is about. It's about learning to embrace our experiences, our challenging experiences or the challenging parts of ourselves with warmth and with kindness. So, you know, I, I love the word embrace. I just think embrace is saying I hold space for this. Embrace is saying there's action there. It's a, a, a kind of a doing and a being, but it's it's holding it and containing it, putting the arms around. And that for me is what self-compassion is about. Um, you know, and what can I do? What's, what next steps can I take? So yeah, embracing me. Beautiful, beautiful. And that feels all warm and fuzzy to me. Where can people hang out with you? Even if you aren't super active at any given moment on social media, is there a place where you like to hang out when it feels good for you there is um instagram is my social of choice and it's at self-compassion community and i'm i'm there a fair bit but you know i i think we should normalize just having to take a break from stuff i'm not taking a break from the rest of my work my goodness (laughs) but sometimes i'm just like if i don't have the capacity to do a post right now then then that's okay That is absolutely okay. Thank you for playing with us. And I'm so grateful that you shared your journey with us. It has felt uplifting. It has really felt uplifting. Mm. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks so much. You know that person who came to mind when you were listening to this episode and you thought, oh, I need to share this with them. Thank you in advance for doing that. The theme of processing grief and difficult emotions continues here on the pod. I want to share tools and inspiring stories of people who have gone through this so you know that you're not alone. Next week on the pod, I have Addison Brazil, who's a men's mental health advocate and co-founder of Tether, an online men's community. We talk about men's mental health during COVID. We talk about grief and why grief may not be what you think it is. And we also talk about daily emotional fitness because you know me, I love making things radically practical for you. This is an urgent, important episode that you don't want to miss. Here's a preview of what you can expect. I think traditionally, obviously this idea of being this male stoic strong 
supporter type. I, th- I think that's it still exists and it's still bleeding in. I, I think that, you know, the importance of mental health has come a long way in the last five years. And I think men are a lot more willing to approach the topic and to, you know, appear weak. And that's in air quotes, of course, because really it's it's strength to be able to do that. But there is this thing that gets in the way for men. And, and we see it week after week after week of so badly wanting to connect and, and share what they're feeling and what they're struggling with, but just feeling that there's not a place for that. I can't wait to share Addison with you next time. And until then, this is Mandy Leto signing out for Enough the podcast. Thank you so much for being here.